Oliver, delightful to meet you. Thank you so much for taking some time to come on the show. I really appreciate it. Ah, super happy to be here. Yeah, super happy to have you, man. And you know, we always like to get the podcast started with a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing at the current moment. Yeah, so I, I grew up in the UK, uh, was originally an electrical engineer and was lucky enough to start working for a startup called, called Arm pretty early in my career. Um, that company went on to have some quite a lot of success. It's it's used in nearly all mobile devices and beyond all, all chips. And um, uh, that gave me an opportunity to move to the Bay Area. Uh, so that's where I live now. I did that about 18 years ago uh, and then ran another startup for a few years and, and then started Impossible Mining um, about 18 months ago. Do you think from being from the UK outside the US, was is it always like the dream of entrepreneurs to come to like the Bay Area? Is that like the spot where like most businesses are started kind of thing? You think that's still true today? Yeah, I think it's it's definitely been the kind of the mecca of, of technology. Uh, I would say it's maybe less important than it used to be. I think with COVID, people have got used to working wherever. Uh, but definitely, you know, in my early career, uh, it was seen as the heart of technology, and I still think is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, yeah, I must say, like when I grew up, I didn't really know anything about entrepreneurs, about starting a business, and uh, you know, I just kind of took a more traditional path, and and then got exposed to it, and then realized actually it's something that I quite enjoy, and I'm reasonably good at it. Right. And where did your interest in electronics stem from, do you think? Have you always been interested in tinkering with things and making things work? Yeah, I, 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 I was, I've always been fascinated by trying to understand how things are. I'm generally pretty curious. And I would say, you know, my mother was, was a big influence. You know, at, uh, at high school, I wasn't particularly great. Um, was kind of stu- studying, uh, was struggling a little bit and, and, you know, I really had a choice to make of whether I went to a business career or a technical career and wasn't quite sure. And she kind of pushed me to do more electronics. And, uh, I, I'm very happy I did because now I do more business, but having the electrical background, the engineering background, I think really sets you up quite nicely. Yeah. Oh, you can learn the business stuff by just talking to people after a while. The electronic stuff is a lot more technical. So, so good on you. Cool. So let's, let's just kind of dive into your most recent project then. What is um, this impossible mining um, organization and why did you start it to begin with? Yeah. Um, we're a startup that's really trying to do responsible seabed mining and refining to really enable the transition uh, away from fossil fuels to renewable energy, and you know I, maybe it's it's worth talking just briefly on the on the origin story, and it, it it really came to the point where you know it was it was 2019. I'd sold the last company. I was starting to think about what to do next, and and then 2020 uh, here in the Bay Area, we had really bad wildfires, and the, the the sky went orange. It was just the worst I've ever seen. The air quality was dreadful, uh, and that was really the final kind of kick for me. That if I'm going to do another startup, this is the third company I founded. It's got to be in the climate tech space, um, and so. Uh, I just really started to research as much as I could about uh, climate tech, uh, where are the problems, and came to the conclusion that, you know, electrification is is a key strategy 
obviously we want people to drive EVs and, and grid storage, but uh, batteries are a bottleneck. You know, we need huge numbers of them and they're completely dependent on the metals that are used in the construction. And it turns out there's some real issues with the supply chain around the metals. Uh, and, and so I also in parallel discovered that there were these resources available on the seabed that had exactly the metals that we want. And, and so it was really the realization that we could do something in this area that was completely different uh, to what others were proposing. Frankly, I got a bit concerned when I learned that, you know, yes, these metals are available on the seabed in these rocks, but the approach that everyone else is attempting is dredging. These big machines that go and collect uh, these rocks, but they really destroy the habitat. And, and for me, just having now lived 18 years here in the Bay Area and being exposed to robotics and AI and lots of technology, that that robots, underwater robots, was just the right way to go. And, and so it was really the, the realization that there was a huge problem and seeing the solutions that I was proposing and not feeling that they were right, that really was the catalyst to say, okay, we're going to start impossible mining and let's try and do it completely differently. Talk about a great call to action. When I was starting my business in 2020, it must have been a separate fire, but God, that summer of 2020 was terrible with fires. I was out knocking on doors while there was smoke billowing through the streets and the sky was orange. It was, it was nasty. Um, can you tell me how much deep sea mining is going on at the moment? The only thing I can think of would be like an oil rig. Uh, is, there, is this their technology that's currently doing this right now? Yeah, strictly there is no deep sea mining going okay. on. Um, if you define um, that, the, obviously there is offshore oil and gas, but it's typically not as deep as you need for deep sea mining. Uh, and and so deep sea mining is an industry that's been researching, but it hasn't yet got into production. You know, all mining is quite highly regulated, so you have to have permits and permissions, and none of that permission has been granted yet for production. There are some exploration permits that have been issued. So we're still a few years away. Uh, from when this industry will actually formally start to generate revenue. Uh, but it's coming. Uh, it's coming fairly quickly. Okay. Okay. Well, this is exciting. Since there's nobody doing it right now, I really want to ask you, why do you think that it's going to work if it hasn't been done yet? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, you know, the first thing is I can actually show you guys. Uh, this is a, a polymetallic module. So this is okay. the actual rock that we are trying to pick up and I'm awesome. holding it in my hand here. And it's very, very rich in battery metals. So, you know, nickel, cobalt, copper, manganese. And it's available just lying on the ocean floor um, in, in huge quantities. I can, I can keep, keep looking at it. Yeah. That's cool uh, and yeah, it is. Where did it you is. get that and, from? Uh, so this came through uh, Scripps Institute, uh, which is the Oceanic Institute in San Diego. And they did some missions to an area in the Pacific Ocean called the Clariton-Clipperton Zone, which is between Hawaii and Mexico. And, and uh, as part of those scientific missions, they picked up uh, um, some samples. Uh, so, you know, I think your, your question of like, why can we do it? Um, Historically, you know, these 
are now, these, these exist at four miles depth. And, and so building the technology to go and pick them off the seabed at four miles is very, very challenging. And that's, I think, why it hasn't been done to date. Uh, but if we want everyone to drive an EV, we need a lot of battery metals. We need nickel, cobalt, we need copper, we need manganese. Um, and so, you know, the approach that others are taking is really this dredging machine. So they take a very, very large machine, they lower it to the ocean floor, and it dredges. It basically picks up the top four or five inches of the sediment. Scrapes uh, any it. Of the destroys it everything it. in its place. Ab absolutely. And, and, you know, any of the bacterial life that lives in that sediment, the sediment itself, the nodules, any megafauna, uh, sometimes there is some wildlife that, that swims or, or actually lays eggs on these nodules. And there's also sponges and corals. And so all of this is basically hoovered up. And then it goes up this long riser pump where it basically, you know, it squirts water into the sediment, sucks up everything that comes back, and then transfers it over this riser tube using hydraulics up the four miles to the support vessel. And, and, you know, the problem with this approach is that it, it really destroys that habitat. It indiscriminately, anything that's in front of this dredger is going to be destroyed. And, you know, some will say, well, this is better than doing it on land. And it may well be because, you know, if you think about where do we get nickel from today, uh, the biggest reserves on land are in Indonesia. They're actually just below a rainforest. So you end up having to deforest large areas and the ore grade is, is quite low. So you have to remove massive quantities of material uh, and destroy the rainforest, uh, dig it up, grind it, roast it, pressurize it, and leach it with sulfuric acid. That is, that is a technology called HPAL, and that's how the majority of today's nickel is, is created. Um, and so you could argue that even the dredging approach is better than doing that because the seabed is a bit like a desert. It's a low energy environment. So there is life, but the biomass, the amount of life for a given area is low compared to a rainforest, but it's not zero. But the big problem, and I think the main problem that the scientists and others have with dredging of the seabed is the biodiversity and the loss of biodiversity. So the problem is, is that this area is so unique and you actually find that you don't have to go very far in distance uh, on the seabed and you get completely new life. So the diversity is, is very, very unique. And each time scientists do expeditions where they drop a box core and they pick it up and, and look at what's in there, they discover hundreds of new species of life. Um, and so I think the fundamental problem that we see is the loss of this biodiversity uh, because it's so unique. From a biomass standpoint, as I said, it's obviously, it's a low energy environment, a bit like a desert. There's much less material life than there is in the rainforest, but still we don't want to destroy it. So, you know, so our approach is, is, is really radically different. Um, one other thing to mention is that these, these dredging technologies, and we can maybe provide some links to, to your, your listeners that mm -hmm. are some YouTube videos where you can see how they work. Um, they actually 
have tracks and they roll over the seabed. And these tracks generate huge amounts of sediment plumes. They're kind of like um, a, a dust storm that's generated in the water column. Um, in fact, on, on the seabed because of the dredging and the tracks. And these sediment plumes can move for many, many miles. And they have huge problems to any of the bigger forms of life down there. It, it actually clogs up some of the breathing apparatus. Um, and so again, you know, we want to minimize the disruption. We don't want to completely destroy the habitat. We don't want to generate sediment plumes. Uh, and so we've architected a completely unique way of picking up these nodules that's you know, completely different from dredging. Dredging, it sounds similar to like showing up at the rainforest with like a bulldozer and, and knocking over trees. The idea being we're going to collect these metals to save the climate and in the process we're killing everything in our path to get to the resources that can bring life on land. And we've already decimated life in the ocean from climate change to begin with and many other different things, whether it be overfishing and stuff. So yeah, let's, let's dive into uh, your technology and how it's fundamentally different from dredging. I think it's really interesting. I'm excited to hear all about it. Yeah. Um, and, and so we are trying to use parallelism and use a lot of technology to really mitigate these problems. And, and so, you know, obviously we've talked about the environmental problems, but there's also the economic problems. These are massive dredging machines, maybe 350 ton in size, absolutely huge. They cost hundreds of millions of dollars to build and to operate. And because of their cost, you can only have one or two of them. And so if they fail uh, or break down, it's going to be very expensive. It's going to take weeks to recover them, repair them, and, and get them redeployed. So, you know, we're coming at it initially driven from the environmental side, but it turns out there are some really good economic benefits to our approach as well. So let, let me get into it. It's fundamentally, it's using parallelism. So we use- Using what? Parallelism. So parallelism. Multi, yeah, by having doing things in parallel. So we have um, up to 100 robotic arms on our vehicle. And our vehicle is designed to hover above the seabed. It doesn't actually physically land. It actually has a technology called a buoyancy engine that allows it to adjust its buoyancy dynamically. And so it can actually hover above the seabed. And then it has a lot of cameras and lights and sensors. And so it can look at the seabed and see where the rocks are, these polymetallic nodules, as they're technically called, and see if any of them have life on them. Some might have sponges, some might have corals, some might have eggs, uh, or some, or we may just decide let's leave 10, 20% behind anyway, so that the life that lives down there has a substrate, has the rocks in place so that life is not destroyed. And so this vehicle basically descends. Once it gets close to the seabed, it turns on its lights. It's pitch black otherwise. Uh, and the lights look directly in front of the vehicle, and then it uses its robotic arms to selectively pick up the nodules that we want to harvest. Obviously, if we detect life on the nodule, a coral, 
a sponge or some eggs, we leave it behind. We don't pick it up. And we can program a particular pattern. We could say 10 or 20% or as much as we wish. We just leave anyway. And the vehicle then moves above the seabed, picking. Once it's fooled its payload, the vehicle uses its battery pack and buoyancy engine to uh, basically go up the water column, up the four miles, uh, to the support ship, where it's now recovered. The battery is swapped, the payload is emptied, any maintenance is, is performed. And now the vehicle is ready to be redeployed, where it basically uses a crane and gets put back into the water. And going back to the parallelism, so we have parallelism on the number of arms, but we also have parallelism on the number of vehicles. We could use, for instance, you know, we could be running with maybe a hundred of these vehicles running in parallel with multiple ships. And so when you do all of that, you start to have very large amounts of throughput. And that's the one advantage the dredgers have. They can move a lot of material. They're huge. Mm -hmm. They have a direct pipe. And so we need to have quite a large number to be able to provide the same amount of throughput or higher. Uh, and, and so, you know, our thinking is that we can scale up to at least 3 million metric tons a year. Uh, that's the same level of production as the dredging machines um, and would generate, you know, one to $2 billion in revenue a year and provide enough uh, batteries for millions of EVs. Wow. And you said that your device is also powered by a battery? Yeah, yeah, ab absolutely. And so it's recharged. I mean, we need energy to uh, operate the buoyancy engine. So the buoyancy engine is the design that we have created. It's we patented it. Wow. And it's, it's what moves uh, a material, typically a liquid, inside a chamber. And so that allows air to come in and, and allow the vehicle to adjust its buoyancy. Uh, it's also used with what we call, um, that's, that's a dynamic buoyancy system, but we have a static buoyancy system. So we have what's called syntactic foam. So this is foam that you often see on underwater vehicles that provides a lot of lift. And so we use that. And we also have thrusters. So we need to have the ability to move the vehicle in any direction. So the buoyancy just allows us to go up or down, mm -hmm. but we need to move in any direction. And so we use thrusters to do that. And all of that is powered by a battery pack. And, and so that battery pack will be uh, recharged uh, at the surface. By a solar panel or by what? So, so we have committed to being uh, net, net uh, zero from day one of production. And, and so that means that if we, uh, you know, we need to find a way to make sure that the energy that we use is not contributing carbon. Um, now, we still have a few years to figure all of this out, so sure. we don't necessarily have all the solutions today. Um, the backup solution would be to use a diesel generator and purchase offsets. Mm -hmm. So that's that's one solution. It's not my preferred solution, uh, but, but it's something that's perfectly valid. Um, you know, in an ideal world, we would have access to renewable energy at port, and we would maybe charge the batteries at port and you know take them back with the nodules um, and so that's that's something that we are researching 
How did you come up with the idea for this device and how did you kind of gather your team members to continue like creating this thing? It's so interesting that it, it, it makes a lot of sense. I'm just, I'm wondering how it came from seeing this need to then create, like actually having, do you have a, a prototype that is actually functioning at the moment also? I'm curious. Yeah, so, so two, two questions. So we have a prototype of the robotic arm. That was the first thing that we actually built. Um, uh-huh. You know, we're a young company, but we were fortunate to get into Y Combinator uh, at the start of the year, mm-hmm. and they encouraged us to, to build something that we could show after the three months. And, and so there is a video of that on our website. It's a kind of a delta arm. You can see it working in a test tank. Uh, so that's that's something that we've built. Uh, we're now building the first shallow water version of the robot. We'll do a shallow version first. Uh, the plan is to demo that around the end of the year, uh, and then we'll follow that up with a deep water uh, version that would go the full, you know, four miles depth. Wow. Um, so, but to answer your question about how to come up, so for me it was, you know. I came to the conclusion that there was this big problem with battery metals. It was a problem that, you know, maybe it's worth just briefly talking like, first problem, we don't know enough of this material on land. You know, if you look at all of the forecasts of the number of EVs that we want people to buy, there just is not enough of this material available. And a new mine on land takes 12 to 15 years to go from discovering the resource to getting it permitted. You have to go through all these environmental assessments. And often, and one of the things that almost nobody talks about, most land-based mines end up displacing people, often indigenous people. And so that often involves litigation. And so that's why the average permitting time is 12 to 15 years. So Globally, we, that, that number? Yeah, yeah. I, I, it, it may be a West number. I think you know China probably doesn't have these issues. They they just make a decision and go there. But but Europe and the US uh, for sure. It's it's twelve to fifteen years uh, because you know you 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 have to do a lot of environmental baseline studies and you have to ultimately nearly always displace people. You also have to build a lot of infrastructure. Most mines need a highway or they need a train line because you've got to move large quantities of material. Uh, you often have to build a village because a mine employs quite a few people. Uh, so that's, that's, that's very common. So first problem, we just don't have enough of this material if we want everyone to drive an EV. And a new mine isn't going to help us in the next decade. Uh, second problem was really the ESG. Uh, we talked a bit about it. Like, you know, we talked about nickel in Indonesia, but let's talk about cobalt. Sure. Cobalt, a pretty important metal, also used in, in EVs, but in smaller quantities. It's really good for managing the heat, so it helps with an EV have long life. The problem is 70% of the world's cobalt comes from uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo in Africa. And they have a habit of using artisanal mines where they employ children. And so, you know, it may be that your EV is using cobalt but used children as labor. Uh, now, the industry is trying to get rid of this, but this is a fact. It, it, it happens. Um, and so, 
you know, from an ESG, if you take the environment, you talk about, let's also talk about tailings. I mean, that refining process. Tailings? Yeah. So tailings is the term used in mining for the waste material. What happens after you extract the metals? What's Mm -hmm. left over? And the problem is, is that these ore grades have gone down drastically. You know, 100 years ago, you got very high ore grades. You might get you know, nickel and copper at you know, a few, three, four, five, six percent. But now all the good stuff's been mined. And so the ore grades are very low. They're, they're maybe sub one percent. Wow. And, and, and so think of that. You know, if you're going after a resource that's one percent, 99 percent of what you dig up is waste. Right. And how do you manage that waste? That's partly tailings, but it gets worse because it's not easy to get the nickel and the cobalt and the copper out of the metal. It takes energy energy and it's often iron or manganese, which is how it's bound. And these, these metals are in large quantities. But the predominant way for nickel, for instance, is this HBAL, this high pressure acid leaching. And it really involves you know, roast, grinding the ore, roasting it, pressurizing it, and then using sulfuric acid to chemically leach and separate the nickel from uh, either the iron or, or other metal. Um, and the big problem is that what happens after you've done that? This acid doesn't dissipate. You know, you, you cannot put it in a river. You cannot put it in the ocean. It's toxic. So what do you do? You create a dam. You create a lake. You create a dam. And you have to manage it. And this is called a tailings dam. Every year, some small percent of these tailings dams fail, polluting all of the groundwater, killing people. It's, it's really quite bad. In fact, there was a major disaster that happened, uh, I believe it was in, in Brazil a few years ago, where one tailings dam failed. And about 280 people died in that one disaster. Well, so this, this tailings dam is a body of water that is mixed with the acids that were used to extract materials. And it's just, is it like, not like nuclear waste, but it's kind of like just sitting there because there's, not, there's nothing else we could do with it. And these are all over yep. the world, I would imagine. Abs- absolutely. And they're typically co-located with the mine sites because uh-huh. uh, if you're only going after 1% of the ore, you don't want to transport 99% of it. So you do it very close to the mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's it's very heavy amounts of acid. Uh, and, and, you know, it's expensive because you obviously have to manage it. Uh, and environmentally, it's very disruptive when it fails. And there are, you know, single digit percent of these these dams that fail every year. Uh, and as I said, there was the big disaster in Brazil where I think 280 people in one uh, one instance unfortunately lost their lives. Um, and so, you know, going back to the problems we're going after, lack of these metals, first problem. Second problem, ESG, the environment, social governance, the fact that there's child labor, the fact we're chopping down rainforests, the fact that we're using a lot of acid. Oh, and by the way, how do you think the energy is created for all of this work in Indonesia today? It's, it's all cold. from coal. Yeah. yeah. So that's not good either. Uh, but there's a third problem that we're trying to resolve. 
So we talked about lack of supply, we talked about ESG. The third problem is China controls the supply chain. Something like- Of uh, precious se- metals? Yeah, for batteries. About 70% of the raw ingredients are now under Chinese control. So they've gone to Africa, they've gone to Indonesia, and they've provided loans and they've bought offtake. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a problem because this is not too dissimilar to Germany, for instance, being addicted to Russian oil. It's very hard for them to turn that off because they don't have a replacement. And when Russia starts to do things like invade Ukraine, you're now funding indirectly that activity. Uh, I believe that if the US does not unlock battery metals, we could be in the same situation as Germany is, but with China. In 10 years from now, we will have to purchase battery metals from China. And without battery metals, we won't be able to make batteries. If we can't make batteries, it'll be very difficult for our economy because we're moving away from fossil fuels. We're effectively replacing oil with battery metals. What do you mean, and they're both extractive, which is a problem, but what do you what do you mean by the U.S. needs to unlock this, meaning that we manufacture batteries here or that we have the raw materials here rather than in China? Both. I, I think it's, it's critical that we do both. And there's been very good progress on the battery manufacturing. Almost every month there's been an announcement for GM, Tesla, they've all signed deals and are either forming or have formed joint ventures with battery manufacturing. There's now a lot of gigafactories planned uh, for the US. Problem is, where are these metals going to come from? There is not much domestic supply. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is, there is a very little amount that we can unlock domestically in the US, a little bit in in Canada, a little bit in Australia. On land you're talking about. Exactly, but but not enough to provide the need. Uh, And so the choice is gonna be buy it from China, of which we'll be competing against the Chinese domestic requirements, or work with company like Impossible Mining to see if we can deliver these battery metals directly to U.S. factories uh, from the seabed. So that's the third problem. We're, we're, you know, to to recap, lack of availability of these materials given by the ore grade on land, the ESG, and then the third, that China controls this supply chain, and we need an independent source. Were you aware of this issue before 2020? No, uh, wow. I, I really, I really kind of became aware of it around 2020. Um, was was late 2020 was when I, I really got into this, and and this critical mineral issue of the supply chain, it's one of the few things that kind of unites both sides of the aisle here, because you know the previous president, President Trump, he issued an executive order on access to critical minerals, including battery minerals. And then President Biden did exactly the same thing. So this is beginning to get uh, visibility in, in Washington, which is, which is good. Uh, because, you know, I really do not think we want to be in the 
position 10 years from now where our economy is dependent on access to a, a resource controlled by China. Yeah, I mean, we're in that position now, but it'd be better to, to limit that as much as we possibly can. Um, as far as supply of these materials or resources, how does how is what's available on land in the U.S., if you know offhand, for example, compared to what's available on offshore in the U.S. and the water versus the land supply of these materials? Or, and how do we know this? Yeah, so... Um, the amount that's available in the US is pretty tiny. Mm-hmm. And most of it is in that low grade stuff as well, right? Very low grade, you know, like nickel deposits at 0.2, 0.3%. Oh, wow. And uh, mines that are still maybe a decade away from all of their permitting being done and, and infrastructure built. Uh, so, you know, it's it's you know it's good, and we should do it, but it's not really going to move the needle. Um, you know, if you look at EVs, you know, an average EV, depending on the size of its battery pack, has between five thousand and ten thousand cell phone battery equivalents. They don't use exactly the same cells, but if you calculate, you know, average cell pack might be fifty kilowatt hours to a hundred kilowatt hours. You know, that's that's between five and ten thousand cell phone batteries. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. And that's in one car. And then, you know, we we are going from maybe four or five percent of all cars sold having a battery to maybe fifty percent by twenty thirty. So that's just unprecedented amount of demand for these battery metals. Right. Yeah. I, I don't know how, how we're going to meet that. Um and are you saying that there's there's a lot more available on the seafloor? Yeah, uh, the seafloor is the biggest deposit of battery metals. Uh, there is more nickel and cobalt on the seabed than everywhere else combined. Well, that would make uh, sense because the seabed is massive. Exactly. So exactly. much, um, mo- so much more massive than land. Yeah, I think seventy percent of our planet is water. Correct. You know, so it's it's yeah, um, and these 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 nodules form at very deep water, but still, uh, there've been some estimates like this this region that's uh, called the Claridon Clipperton Zone, the CCZ. It's between uh, Hawaii and Mexico. Um, that's 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 the location. It's a fairly large location. Uh, but it's estimated to have something like $10 trillion worth of battery metals mm-hmm. in that one location. So it's, it's, it's big. Any idea how mining would work in international waters where people don't have claim to the resources? Yeah, it's actually very well understood and established. So um, there is a United Nations Convention on the High Seas. So it's the rules that say... What are territorial waters? What is the area of, of your that belong to you as a country? And then what area is international? So that is in a, a, a treaty called the UN Convention on the High Seas and uh, has been ratified by something like 167 countries uh, plus the EU. Um, and you know that 
defines, for instance, that typically 200 nautical miles off your coast is your what's called exclusive economic zone. Sure. That's yours. You, you know, if you're off the coast of the U.S., that exclusively belongs to U.S. Uh, and U.S. can decide what they want to do. But as soon as you go beyond that, you're in international waters and there are rules about, you know, you're allowed to have a ship and the ship can go that way and there are rules about what get done. Uh, this treaty, which was created in, in around the 80s, um, also established uh, a, uh, a UN-affiliated uh, body called the International Seabed Authority, the ISA. Uh, it's a Jamaican-based uh, body. It has the same members, so all 167 countries plus the EU, and it has the jurisdiction to issue permits for seabed mining and to regulate the seabed mining. So it comes up both with the regulations for what you must do and how you must do it, but it also issues the actual permits to say this area belongs to you, you have the rights to mine, um, and it will also collect a royalty, just like on land. And that royalty will be used for, in the words of the treaty, the benefit of all mankind. So that organization is trying to figure out um, what is the royalty rate and how is it collected and how is it spent. Uh, and this is the first time the UN is taxing an operation. So it's uh, a little bit complicated. The first time ever. Yeah, yeah. To yeah, I mean, there's the because this is effectively a tax. Uh, because this is a jurisdiction that does not belong to any one country. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a resource there. Uh, now, this body, uh, called, again, called the International Seabed Authority, or the ISA, uh, they have issued something like 32 exploration permits already. Uh, and guess what? China has the majority of them. <laughs> mm -hmm. Is it specifically uh, for mining these these metals or are they like harvesting living things what are those permits for so far those are for mining minerals from the seabed and they're probably uh, dredging aren't they uh well again none of this is yet there, there are ex yeah. expiration permits okay so a little bit of a uh, a little bit of um background so in mining um first of all you discover a resource and Next step is you you ask a regulator, someone that, you know, if, if the mine was in California, you would ask California and you would get, you would uh, ask and, and submit paperwork and probably pay a little bit of money and get what's called an expiration permit. Now, the expiration permit does not allow you to go mining. You know, what, what it does do is it allows you to do um, a baseline environmental study. So first step, is you have to understand what lives there. Second step, what is the impact of my mining? So here's the baseline. We know this, this amount of life lives here. And then you submit a mining plan where you say, this is what I'm going to go and do. I'm going to dig up this area. And this is what's going to die or be have to relocate. And that has to get submitted. And the third thing you have to do is you have to quantify the resource. So you have to go and actually figure out how much material is there, what is it worth? What is my cost going to be to actually go and pick it up? And in fact, there's a formal way to report that. It's called an NI43101. It's a way that you disclose to a public stock market what is the resource value. 
and what are your costs? Once you've done all of that work, typically four to five years of work, including the environmental baseline, because it's not enough to just say, this is what it is on Wednesday. You got to say what it's like for a whole year. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the life that was there. That, once you submit all of that paperwork, the regulator then takes maybe another year to absorb it. And then they say, yep, okay, approved. You now have permission to go mining. So that's that's how permitting works on land. And as part of that production permit that you will pay an upfront fee, you also pay a royalty yep. that will go to, in this case, the state of California uh, for the, the resource that you're getting access to. So this UN, the UN body in Jamaica is trying to use a similar model for this deep sea mining opportunity. Absolutely. So, so that's exactly what they are uh, proposing to do. Um, and so we are still at the expiration phase uh, and they're at the draft, but almost final draft of the regulations. Uh, and so who's that's we, what's happening. We are at the experts. Who are you referring to in that case? Anyone who's uh, looking to do deep sea mining? Yeah, basically, and, and anyone that wants to to go. But um, so you know, a lot of companies have worked together and experts to help draft these regulations. Okay. Uh, so the ISA takes the lead, but you know they have some non-government uh, agencies and organisations that actually participate, uh, like Pew Charitable Trust, for instance. Uh, puts quite a bit of resources into helping understand them and improve them. Um, So, yeah, so basically the ISA has jurisdiction in international borders. Now, there is a country called the Cook Islands, which used to be part of New Zealand, uh, which has a large... Uh, exclusive economic zone because they have many islands and mm-hmm. so they have a big area and they have a lot of these these nodules, these rocks in that area. And they actually passed the legislation, I think around 10 years ago, to establish the Seabed Minerals Authority. That's the part of the government that works like the ISA. It is the regulator. And that regulator recently, maybe a couple of months ago, issued free expiration permits. So fundamentally, two jurisdictions, international water or territorial waters. Got it. In the territorial waters, uh, the Cook Islands is the first country that has now gone through that process. Very but cool. neither have yet issued production permits. So we're still a few years out. Yeah, well, I suppose we, we really need to get on it. Um, I'm curious what your business model is. I understand that you're a new company and what are your plans for expanding and monetizing what you're doing? You're essentially an, an, an inventor. You're creating the tech that many people could use. What are your plans? Yeah, I mean, we, we actually um, have some choices to, to make. And, you know, obviously, if you were to do everything yourself, including getting the permits, doing the environmental studies, uh, funding the working capital to build out the fleet of robots, that's going to involve a lot of working capital. Uh, and, and it's not clear we would or would want to raise all of that money. Well, I imagine you take like a Boeing type of approach, you know? Yeah, so, so, so an alternative strategy could be to just build the technology 
and then license it to people that have already done some of that work and, and have the deep pockets. Uh, and so those are the two extremes. Uh, there could be a middle ground where maybe you form a joint venture per mindset where each party brings certain levels of expertise and, and resources. And so we're, we're a little bit open. I think right now our focus is to get the technology to work. Um, and once it works, then we'll figure out what's the best uh, deployment. Yeah, the field of dreams approach. If you build it, they will come. Or like the face, the same as the Facebook approach as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, general consensus in the industry is that what we're trying to do just can't be done. It's impossible. You know, building robots to work at these depths, to move this amount of material, to do it without destroying the habitat. Uh, these are tough technical engineering problems to solve. Um, but we will, we're up for it. That's, that's our mission. That's what we're focused on, on trying to do. And, and time, time will tell if we succeed, but we're, we're putting all of our heart and soul into this. Yeah. So naturally, you named your company after the word impossible and are determined to spend all your time doing it. Perfect. The classic yeah. story. Yeah. I mean, it's great for recruiting engineers because you come, you know, the message is that come and join us and do what everyone thinks just is impossible. That's so motivating. Yeah. What is this I read about bacterial respiration? Was it like a, a business model that you, a way for you to make money right now, wasn't it? Uh, not exactly. Um, so, you know, a mining company at its basic level has to do two things. It has to dig stuff up and then it has to get stuff out of what it digs up. Right. So in one way, you could say the mining or the harvesting or the pickup is the robotics. But once we got this rock, this rock isn't the valuable component. The valuable component is the metal inside it. So how do we get the metal out? And, and I talked about HPAL. I think you were a little horrified when I, when I mentioned how that works. Um, we don't like HPAL because it uses massive amounts of energy and it leaves behind all of these acid uh, tailings uh, dams. Uh, and so, you know, one of our co-founders, uh, Professor Ken Nielsen, he discovered earlier in his career uh, and these naturally occurring microbes that actually can breathe rocks. It's, it's wacky stuff. So it's not eat, it's breathe. So, um, and this is what we call bioextraction. And, and so what we're attempting to do is to see if we can get these microbes to work in a manner that we can turn into an industrial refining process. And, and, and so instead of having to use all of that acid or all of the roasting, what we wanna do is get the rock, take the nodule, grind it, and then inoculate it with a, a water and bacteria mixture. And we will also add a food source uh, some some form of maybe waste food, and then wait some number of hours. And the idea is that these microbes, basically because there's no oxygen, they have evolved to do what we call metal respiration, where they can actually breathe the oxygen that is bound to the metal. So in these rocks, you have manganese, but you also have oxygen oxidization of it bound to the magnets. It's inside the rock. 
But these microbes have evolved that, you know, when they're put in an environment where there's no oxygen in the air, you know, you and I will die if there's no oxygen. We need it to, to breathe. But these microbes, because they're really smart and old uh, geologically, uh, from you know, they can actually insert an electron from the inside of their cell through their cell membranes and kind of stick it into the rock. And that electron has the process of actually breaking the bound of the oxygen and the manganese, freeing the oxygen so they can continue the respiration and continue to breathe. And uh, it's, a, it's a wacky discovery that, that Ken made, um, I think actually in the 80s, it's been peer reviewed, but it's so novel that it's not taught in textbooks yet. Mm-hmm. You know, most people have no idea that these microbes can actually do this phenomenon. And, and so we filed a patent and we're now researching how could we build an industrial refining process where we use these microbes to do the separation and hence avoid the use of acid. Oliver, who's bankrolling your crazy AI experiments? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we, we, we actually are due to do an announcement on that fairly soon. Oh. Um, but we, 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 we closed a, a fairly large round of funding as Excellent. a result of the YC community. And um, so, so that I, I, I can't say yet, but it's coming. Um, and, you know, we're still a young company and we, we're, we're pretty ambitious about what we're trying to do. Uh, but if we can if we can get this process to work um, and to scale up, you know, we know it works in the lab, but can we make it efficient? Can we make it cost effective? And that's the work that we are we're focused on. And if we can do that, I think it has the potential to remove the use of acid uh, for metal refining, not just for nodules, but for land-based ore. And, and that in itself could be pretty game-changing. Yeah. Well, this is awesome, man. It's been totally fascinating speaking to you. I really appreciate you taking and sharing some of your valuable time with me to share kind of with my audience what you're doing. I think there's a lot of opportunity there and plenty more to learn, clearly. Uh, before we go, I do want to just touch on um, your you formulated your company as a B Corp. I just kind of wanted to get like your explanation on that, why you decided to go with that, that formulation and how it's important to you. Yeah, I mean... The whole thing of impossible mining is is to do good, uh, to really help us move away from fossil fuels and, and to go to renewable energy. And, and, and so I really like the concept of, of a B Corporation where you are a for-profit entity, but you have a public benefit as well as you know, maximizing shareholder value, making, making money from shareholders, which is what nearly all companies that are not nonprofits are focused on. So, you know, by being a B Corp, uh, our directors of the company have have an obligation to do both, maximize shareholder value, make money, but also do what we've listed as our public benefit. And what we listed in our certificate of incorporation, which you can go and look up, is to, to really deliver responsible battery metals to help the world move beyond fossil fuels. So, so it's core to our mission, um, you know, and we, we take it very seriously, this responsible metals. You'll, you'll see something on our website called Better EV, uh, which is a, a pledge that we made around eight criteria, 
that we want to deliver. So for us, it's not enough to just to be net zero. I think that's important. And, you know, compared to other mining companies, they're talking about net zero in 2050 yep. for scope one emissions. You know, we're talking about net zero for scope three as soon as we, we scale. So that's drastically what, different. What are but, the, the scopes, the differences in the scopes? Yeah. So scope one is your direct emissions. Okay. So it's, yeah. it's what, what you do. Okay. Whereas scope two is is the indirect and scope three is more your supply chain. Got it. Um, so, you know, so uh, it's obviously gets much harder to do scope three because you have to make sure that all of the supply chain that you use is there, including, for instance, transportation. Um, but, you know, beyond net zero, we've committed to not displacing people. As I mentioned, most mines displace people. We've uh, committed to uh, being conscious about biodiversity loss you know, um, minimizing any biodiversity loss. Uh, we're conscious about water use. Uh, we're keen to encourage recycling. Um, and, and there are others. And, and so in our view, you know, no, no toxic acid, you know, this goes way beyond what most people are thinking about. But we think ultimately is what consumers want. And we want everyone to be able to A, afford an EV, and B, feel good about driving one not realizing, you know, is there a tailings dam somewhere that's going to fail and kill people and how much rainforest was destroyed in the process. Oliver, I think you've made your intentions very clear throughout this podcast. So I really appreciate it. It's been an enlightening discussion, particularly for me. So thank you so much. Again, I really appreciate it. And then I always love to ask if you have any final pieces of advice for young folks who are passionate about building a better world. I think just do it. I mean, you know, especially if you're young, uh, there's almost no downside to just trying. And, you know, having now been an entrepreneur for a little while and done a few companies, uh, I, I think one of the most important characteristics is that determination. Just just don't give up. Keep Keep trying. And if someone says something's impossible, name your company after it and do it anyways. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, everything is impossible until it isn't. Well put. All right. Thank you so much, Oliver. It's been a joy. Great. Thanks so much. You got it. All right, everybody. And we'll see you. So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrealty.org today.